0: We've got to chapter three, which is hidden in the NIV Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. One day, Ruth's mother in law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose woman you have w- worked, as a relative of ours, stealing barley on the threshing floor. wash. Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, (coughs) look at the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian-redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer good let him redeem you but if he is not willing as surely as the lord lives i will do it lie here until the morning so she lay at his feet until morning but got up before anyone could be recognized and he said no one must know that a woman came to the, fles- that came to the threshing floor he also said bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out when she did so he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, sorry, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law, empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today.
1: Good morning, everyone. Lovely to uh, see you, looking less bright-eyed and slightly less bushy-tailed than I seem to remember you were on Tuesday morning. But fantastic to see you still being alive. Um, let's pray, shall we, because I need to pray. Father God, we thank you so much that the God of the book of Ruth is our God. Not big, powerful, and distant, but here with us. Not big on power, but light on personality. Just a God who loves us, cares about us, and has wonderful plans for us. Thank you that it is true that the last page in Ruth's story is a happy one, though it's a struggle to get there. And the last page in our story will be a happy one too, though sometimes we feel almost overwhelmed by the struggle. Thank you that we don't struggle alone. Thank you that you struggle with us. Struggle with us now, will you, Father? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, how do you think about God? When you think about God, what sort of thoughts come into your mind? Uh, when uh, insurance companies speak about acts of God, they, they mean the kind of events that you, you can't explain as a result of human action. But they think about earthquakes, floods, freak storms. And I just wonder whether we Christians sometimes kind of slip into the trap of thinking it that way about God as well. He, he's only involved in the, the inexplicable things of life. The, the universe is an act of God. That's pretty obvious. The spectacular, the out of the ordinary, they're acts of God. The unexpected, that's an act of God. He's at work in these things, but, but what about the rest of life? What about the ordinary things? The unspectacular? Well, then we're not quite so sure. Let me tighten the screw a little. Does your prayer life treat God as an insurance company would? As though... We, we only ask him to get involved when we run out of ideas. We only ask him to get involved when we're confronted with issues that are too big for us. Do we, without ever meaning to, kind of airbrush God out of the ordinary, the little things, the small decisions? It's a very real trap, and certainly one that I fall into so easily. You see, from one point of view, even the death of the Lord Jesus himself doesn't fit quite into the insurance company's definition of an act of God. I mean, Jesus' death is perfectly explicable. In purely human terms, we don't need to drag God into it. Unwise clashes with the establishment, the jealousy of priests combined with the greed of Judas Iscariot, the mixture of misunderstandings, it's quite easy to see how Jesus could be arrested, tried, and crucified without bringing God into the equation at all. Yet you and I know that God was at work that day. In fact, the cross was God's, the climax of God's great redeeming plan to rescue us from the foolishness of our own choices. God was at work in the corridors of power in Jerusalem, God was at work in the religious ferment in Judea. God was at work in the bitter hatred between Pharisees and Sadducees, in the malevolence of the crowd, even in the jealousy of Judas. All that was done by ordinary human beings, done for their own personal reasons, done for, through their own free will. Yet in the final analysis we discover that all of it was caught up in the purposes of God. Now, Why do I labour that point, rather? because I I want us to see a pattern. I, I want us to see a pattern that we find again and again in the Bible. God's work doesn't drop out of the sky, pure and untouched by human hands, not normally. So often it is through perfectly understandable human activities that we get to see the activity of God. It's an old pattern, And we see it clearly here as the drama unfolds in the book of Ruth. In the big events and the small, the expected and the unexpected, the ordinary and the extraordinary, God is at work. And in the very human goings-on in Bethlehem around the time of the barley harvest, God is at work writing the story of his people's lives. It's especially important to keep this pattern in mind as we embark on chapter 3 this morning. Because here we find very ordinary people kind of assessing opportunities, making decisions, even trying to manipulate events for good ends. There are no angelic visions. There are no miraculous signs. There are no words of knowledge. And yet I say again, through it all, God is at work. The story's been building up slowly, and this morning we come to a kind of crossroads. You you remember in chapter 1, the famine in Bethlehem leads a a man called Elimelech to take his family to Moab, but instead of finding life there, they experience death. And by the end of 10 years, all there is to show are three gravestones and three widows. Two of them return to Bethlehem, but how will they survive? They're vulnerable and they're unprotected. Yesterday in chapter 2, we think the question's answered. As we're introduced to Boaz, the wealthy relative, again and again, our our hopes are raised and we get excited about the possibility that this may all turn out well in the end. Boaz is kind to Ruth, he's generous to Ruth. He shows grace way beyond law to Ruth. There are loads of reasons to be optimistic. But that's all. You might remember chapter 2 ends with a bit of an anticlimax. The harvest is over, and we're left to ponder. Well, is that all there is to it then? Today's chapter in the Ruth story is all about a strange relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. There's a kind of fascinating interplay between these two huge realities in this passage. God's power to will and our responsibility to act. Does the fact that God's got all eventualities covered that he knows the end from the beginning, that he's written the last line of the story, does that mean that we're simply passive and fatalistic? Is the Christian life simply the spirit-filled version of the Doris Day song, "K Sarah Sarah"? Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. K Sarah Sarah. Well, if that's the question, the answer's an emphatic no. We're not simply pawns in God's drama. This is an amazing thought. We're actually called to be co-authors in our own story. And that means we're called to take risks. The thought of God's work in our hands, let's make that very personal, the thought of God's work in my hands sounds extremely risky. And we're going to think about risk this morning. Three thoughts about risk from this passage. Firstly, risk requires action. Look how the story begins in chapter three. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, one day. What does that mean? Well, it means that up to this day, nothing's happened. It means that there's been no texting between Ruth and Boaz. There's no update on Ruth's Facebook page. We We don't even know that they've got to meet or contacted each other at all. Has the opportunity come and gone? Well, Naomi doesn't think so. But here's the point. She doesn't wait for Boaz to text Ruth any longer. She takes the initiative herself. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter... I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked as a relative of ours, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Tonight. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there till he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, uh, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do well what do you think of that talk about an interfering (laughs) mother-in-law and don't think there's anything spontaneous about this will you this isn't suddenly a thought and inspiration that came flashing through uh, naomi's mind she's been working on this for days weeks but look the problem naomi saw back in chapter one is still the problem as chapter 3 begins. Way back in the beginning, you might remember, Naomi expresses her concerns for her two daughters-in-law like this. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. May the Lord. Back then, in Naomi's mind, it was her prayer that God would provide for these two girls. At that point, she'd seen it as God's responsibility. He would do it. But something has changed. Something has changed in the heart of Naomi. She's come to the point where she realizes that, yes, God will do this. But he's going to do it through her. There's not going to be any writing in the sky. There are not going to be any angelic visitations. There isn't going to be a prophetic word. God is going to do this and he's going to do it through her and he's going to do it tonight. What's Naomi's motivation here? Is she just one of those meddling, matchmaking matrons at the back of church, always trying to get the girls married off over coffee? She says what her motivation is. In verse 1, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. She wants Ruth to be cared for. She's thought long and hard about this. She's come up with a plan. And tonight's the night. It involves Boaz. Boaz the man. Boaz the friend. Boaz the member of the family. Maybe Naomi simply sees him as a good marriage partner. After all, he's well-off, he's well-respected, he's certainly shown himself to be kind and thoughtful. Best of all, he's closely related, and he's available. Ruth could do a lot worse, to be sure. But it appears that maybe Boaz has been a bachelor for some time, and he might need a, a little, well, what shall we call it? Feminine persuasion? So Naomi gives Ruth a crash course on the genteel art of catching your man. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Ruth, you must look and smell absolutely gorgeous. Nothing must be left to chance. Wait till after supper when he's had plenty to eat and plenty to drink and is generally in a pretty happy frame of mind and exhausted from the physical efforts of the day. Then he'll go to sleep. Then you can uncover his feet. He'll soon wake up soon enough and he'll take it from there. Okay? But is there something else going on here? Just look closely at Naomi's advice, will you? Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. If we were to keep on reading through the Bible story, we would encounter that kind of formula again. We'd bump into it a little further down the road in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David has been mourning the death of his little baby. Do you remember after Bathsheba Gate? Listen to this. Then David got up from the ground. After he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. After he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, This is a way of marking that the end of mourning has come. And tonight marks the end of mourning for Ruth, and the hope of a new beginning for Ruth and Naomi. And can I throw in a quick remark, that's got very little to do with the text, to be honest, about the difference between looking seductive and looking attractive? Let us never, ever forget that beauty is a God-given gift. Attraction is good and attraction is godly. We, we saw, that we've seen this week with the smiley Lawrence, how every groom who stands at the front of the church on his wedding day is absolutely bowled over by the beauty of his bride and so he should be. And we men, we need to find our wives beautiful. And we need to tell them so. So let's not overreact against the world's obsession with seduction. That we we let the world steal away our appreciation of feminine beauty. Did you spot a hobby horse there? It has just left the room. Let's come back to the passage. Sure, Naomi's is a very human plan. It's a daring plan. We might even call it a risky plan. I don't know many pastors who would recommend that uh, we attempt try this plan out with um, young people here this week. But it seems as though Naomi's got it all covered. She does understand human nature remarkably well, and from her perspective, it's a piece of cake. But what about Ruth? I can't help feeling that for Ruth this is a very, very risky business. What will this man do when he discovers a beautiful woman at midnight, all dressed up with nowhere to go? Will he take advantage of her? Or will he send her home in disgrace? Expose her to ridicule for being so ridiculous, outrageously forward? As Ruth takes Naomi's advice, we're certainly left to wonder. Well, while we're wondering, let's step back for just a moment. Let's ask ourselves, is this God's plan or is this Naomi's? And the answer is, it's both. God's sovereignty doesn't imply our passivity or our inactivity. God's sovereignty doesn't require us to be fatalistic, to kind of let go and let God. No. No. The fact is that God has plans. Gives us the confidence that we can make plans. Very often one of the ways, one of the evidences that God is at work is that we are at work. Is it risky? I should say so. But is it reckless? Not at all. I I don't know how to say this kindly, so I'll just say it. If you're sitting on a decision this week, Don't sit there like a lemon, waiting for a sign. On the basis of everything you know about God, your Heavenly Father, step out in faith and trust Him for the outcome. Because risk requires action. But secondly, risk requires integrity. And again, step back with me for a moment and just uh, let's ask again, is it okay to be as int- intentional as this? And I think we discover from this passage that stepping out in faith isn't about doing what we want. Stepping out in faith is about doing what we should. That there's an integrity about it and, and that's written in spades for us here. So exactly what does happen at the f- freshing floor this momentous night? Well, we discover what a remarkable young woman Ruth is. She is a woman of real integrity. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. That's an interesting thought. Uh, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. So far, Naomi's plan is working perfectly. Here's Boaz. He's satisfied with good food, good drink, good friends. He's exhausted after the demands of the day. He settles down to sleep by the edge of the heap of grain. Here he can rest and here he can guard the grain all at the same time. Little does he know what God has in store for him this night. Ruth makes her first move when she hears him snoring. She moves quietly. She doesn't want to disturb him, not yet anyway. She uncovers his feet like Naomi says and settles down. Now all kinds of suggestions have been made about what Ruth's really doing here. Is there more to this elaborate plan than meets the eye? Maybe uncovering Boaz's feet is just a rather polite way of saying something more. I do not think so. Do you know the Bible is quite capable of being sexually explicit when it wants to be? And it absolutely doesn't want to be here. In fact, the very opposite. All through this incident, both Boaz and Ruth show what remar- how remarkably careful they are to do what is right. And when Boaz finally does speak, he's anxious to follow all the proper proprieties. There's No fun and games in the darkness on the threshing floor outside Bethlehem this night. It's just that Ruth's actions are risky and they're very easily understood. And what the writer of our book labours to make abundantly clear is that Ruth lies at Boaz's feet, not where his wife would sleep, at his side. At every point in the story, Ruth shows herself to act with the utmost integrity and humility. In the middle of the night, Boaz rolls over and wakes up. His feet are cold, perhaps. But then, gosh, there's something else going on here that he didn't quite expect. Surprise, surprise, there's a woman at the foot of his mattress. Naomi's plan is working. If you remember the script, all Ruth has to do now is nothing. Just wait for Boaz to make the next move. But look what does happen next. Ruth changes the plan. When Boaz wakes up and says through the darkness, who are you? She says, I am Ruth. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That was not in the script. But take one step back. Who are you? Who are you? Does anything strike you? about Ruth's answer, because I think it should. There's a word that crops up again and again through this book. It's a word of death. It's there in chapter 1. It's writ large all the way through chapter 2. It crops up one more time for a specific reason in chapter 4, as I'll show you. But it is conspicuous by its absence here in chapter 3. Who are you? We are conditioned. To expect the answer to be something like this, I am Ruth the Moabite from Moab. Up to that point, up to this point, that has been her default reply. She's always been Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the one who doesn't deserve to be here, Ruth the one that no one would notice. But now, when the chips are done, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. I want to suggest this marks an extraordinary turning point in the story. Her identity is being transformed from Ruth the outsider to Ruth the one who belongs. There's not a sniff of Moab here in Ruth chapter 3. Why? Because she's come to take refuge under God's wings. And that has given her a whole new sense of confidence. I wonder if there's a powerful message for us here. Let's take a bit of a diversion. On a popular radio quiz show, one of the resident experts boldly asserted that there's just one word in the English language that starts with the letter S, but is pronounced SH. And that word is sugar. This prompted an immediate avalanche of responses from angry listeners, the best of which simply asked, are you sure? <laughs> and isn't that a great question? Are you sure? Now of course, it is possible to be totally confident and still be wrong. The panelist on the quiz show was sure, but he was wrong. But this morning I want to ask you whether you're sure about this. Are you sure about the most important thing in life and death? Time and eternity. Are you sure about the love of God for you? Imagine going to see your bank manager tomorrow to ask for a loan. I know it doesn't work this way and it's all online these days, but stick with me. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. You're shown into his plush office. You, You wade through thick pile carpet. You're invited to take your seat, which is at least 18 inches lower than his. How do I stand for a loan, you ask? You don't stand, he says, you kneel. (laughs) Uh, And then suddenly the door bursts open, and and in rushes this little boy. He throws his lunchbox into the corner of the office, and without a hint of embarrassment, he leaps into the bank manager's arms. And throwing a high five, he says, yo, Dad. And just for a moment, the bank manager looks human. My apologies to any... No, actually, I don't apologise to any (laughs) bank managers... They deserve everything they get. <laughs> How do you see? That there's, there's no fear in that son's approach. No knocking on the door. No knocking of the knees. He just rushes straight in. See, he's not like you. He has the status of a son, and that gives him a wonderful feeling of security. Yo, dad. Now, click on that thought, could you, and drag it into this passage. How does Ruth come before Boaz this night? She doesn't come in the fear of a slave. She comes with the faith of a son, a daughter. She's not an outsider any longer. A a plaintiff, pleading for mercy. She comes as one of God's chosen people now. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. There's a whole new confidence about the way she comes. She's not begging for mercy now. She's asking for marriage. So why does Ruth rewrite the script at this point? Why doesn't she simply do what uh, Naomi tells her? Well, Ruth changes the plan because she's got a plan of her own. Naomi had planned a home for Ruth, somewhere where she could find comfort and security. But Ruth has bigger and better ideas. She's planning an heir for Naomi. Compassion had driven Naomi. Family loyalty motivates Ruth. She's asking for more than a home. She's asking Boaz to act as a redeemer. Not just for her, but for the whole family of her dead husband. Not just as a way of commemorating the past, but as a way of guaranteeing the future. You see, the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, has a special role in Israelite law. He is the way that God provides for protecting the family uh, of the uh, Israelite who dies without any children. He's the way that God can keep the name of the dead alive. He's the one who can keep the inheritance of the dead man in the family. By the law of redemption, the closest relative is obliged to marry the childless widow to raise up children for the man who's died. If Boaz will marry Ruth, then Elimelech's family line will not come to a dead end in Moab. Every child born of their marriage will be considered Kilion's heir as well, and Elimelech's family will live on. See, the whole point of the book of Ruth is the bringing of redemption to Naomi. And Ruth shows herself to be faithful to Naomi yet again. She's concerned to provide the heir who will reverse all the tragedies that have befallen her mother-in-law. She's been faithful from the start, as this young woman, Ruth. She didn't seek her own interests when she left Moab, back in chapter one. She's not seeking her own interests now. Not her own pleasure, not her own security. She's seeking redemption Naomi. And amidst it all, she uses that lovely phrase in verse 9, spread the corner of your garment over me. Our English Bibles rather obscure the fact that we've met this expression before. It's the expression Boaz used back in chapter 2, verse 12. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here in the threshing floor outside Bethlehem, Ruth calls on Boaz to answer his own prayers, to put his own words into action, to cover her with his wings. And the same pattern we've seen all the way through the book of Ruth is in action again. The work of human beings, which in the final analysis is seen to be the work of God himself. Boaz will cover her with the corner of his garment, and in doing so, the Lord will cover Ruth under his wings. I think you can make a case for this being the central theme through the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite is coming to take refuge under God's wings for the redemption of Naomi. There is one other place in the Old Testament where that image is used. We, we haven't done too much Bible flipping, have we? But wonder if you would turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. It's uh, page 910 in my Bible, <laughs> but that won't be much help to you. Ezekiel chapter 16. God is talking about his relationship with the people of Israel and he uses this striking, astonishing, graphic picture. Verse 4. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Gosh, the birth of the nation of Israel. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Do you see that phrase again? Verse 8 I spread the corner of my garment. Over you. This time it's God who's talking. He's talking about his relationship with his people, Israel. It's not a picture, is it, of some fairy tale marriage on the front cover of Hello Magazine? This is the ultimate rags to riches rescue story. It's about the covering of shame. Shame. Isn't that a powerful emotion? At the very deepest level, we all have a primeval fear of being uncovered and exposed. I have it at this very moment. I feel that far away from you knowing what I'm really like. I call it primeval because it stretches right back to the Garden of Eden. When a rebellious Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Isn't it interesting that the first negative emotion in the Bible is not guilt, which is what we might imagine. It is shame. Suddenly they felt something they'd never felt before. They felt naked and exposed. I'm not sure whoever thought fig leaves were a good idea. I mean, you'd need a pretty good moisturizer for a start. But ever since, there's been that fundamental human condition we need to cover our shame. The beauty of the Gospel is that God's very first act is to sacrifice lambs to make clothes and he covers their shame. And that's the big picture here, isn't it? Ruth longs for someone who can spread the corner of their garment over her and cover her shame. Ruth isn't just a love story, it's a redemption story. And ultimately the story of God and Israel, the story of Boaz and Ruth, is the story of Jesus and his church. And that's why this story resonates so deeply with us. That's why everyone says, I love the book of Ruth because it answers the cry in my heart for someone to spread the corner of their garment over me. (coughs) Well, coming back to the passage, do you notice how the narrative is slowing right down now? It's like we're watching this drama unfold frame by frame. And as the action slows, the tension mounts. Ruth's basically asking Boaz to marry her. How is he going to react to that? You can almost feel her heart beating in the page, can't you? Well, we know that because of what Boaz says in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You, might, you, uh, may, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. Oh, we've heard those words before, haven't we? And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. What gracious words they are. Does it remind you of someone? Because it should. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And I think at this point we should heave a mighty sigh of relief. Phew! But not so fast. Just as we think we can hear wedding bells um, ringing, there's another problem. I don't believe it. Another problem, an unexpected one, a problem Naomi certainly hadn't anticipated, a problem that will once again test Ruth's trust in God to the limit. It's true, Boaz is a close relative, but would you believe it, there's another relative who's closer still. The right to redeem Ruth and her family does not rest with Boaz. at least not in the first instance. There's a closer relative who has a prior claim. And Boaz will not usurp this unnamed man's right. This is a kind of Thomas Hardy moment. Just when it's all about to come good and everyone's going to live happily ever after. Disaster strikes. I'm a strict Baptist. I knew it would. (laughs) Well, just think about this from Boaz's point of view for a moment, will you? We know by now he wants to marry Ruth, but he will not do it the wrong way. He is willing to risk the woman he loves for the sake of honouring the God he loves more it's very easy for me to talk about integrity. As long as integrity doesn't interfere with my plans or conflict with my wishes. (coughs) Risk requires action, and risk requires integrity. But as we draw towards a close, risk also requires trust. There's a kind of neat parallel between chapter two and chapter three, both start and finish with exchanges between Ruth and Naomi. And once again, as the chapter ends, the story is charged with suspense. We can imagine that Naomi too has had a pretty restless night at home. Just what's been going on down at the threshing floor? Has it turned out as she planned? Come on, Ruth, tell me what happened. How did it go? Come on, tell us, I want all the details. (coughs) Well, Ruth might go home. She might tell her mother in law everything. She might prove again to Naomi that she's anything but empty. <coughs> but she doesn't know who is going to redeem the family at the end of the day. Will it be Boaz, the man who longs to take her as his wife? Or will it be some stranger whose name she doesn't even know? At one level, it all remains very uncertain. But look at verse 16 again with me, will you? Then Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law, empty-handed. Don't go back to your mother-in-law, empty-handed. Well, what's that all about then? Well, this story, remember, is about the redemption of Naomi. And through this gift, Boaz is telling Naomi he knows exactly what she's up to. And he urges her to trust him. I think we see that in the final words that Naomi gets to speak in the whole of the story. They come in verse 18. Well, my daughter... Wait, my daughter, sorry. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens next. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Wait. Well, you've changed your tune, Naomi. At the start of the chapter, it was all action. <clears throat> now, at the end of the chapter, it's all waiting and trusting. Somehow acting in faith gives way to waiting in faith. Well, what's that all about, and how did that happen? Well, I want to say there's no contradiction here. There are different responses to different situations. Do you remember how the author of Ecclesiastes puts it? There's a time for everything. And a season for every activity under heaven. And we might add, there's a time to push doors, and there's a time to stop trying to fix everything. Some of us are natural fixers, aren't we? We'd rather act and and fix things than wait and let God fix things. But we are not the Lord Jesus. We're not the rescuers in this situation. Sometimes all we can do is wait for Him to rescue us. And we need to develop the kind of spiritual instinct that tells us when to spot the time of transition as it comes. And we need the spiritual suppleness to adapt from planning and doing one day to waiting and praying the next. And some of us aren't very spiritually supple. We're kind of very fixed. We know what we're trying to do and we just carry on trying to do it beyond the time when maybe we should have stopped. Risk requires trust. It's easy to forget what's happening here. It looks also very ordinary, doesn't it? There's no voice from the sky, no angelic visitation, no miraculous sign. It's just a very human story, laden with all the risks and uncertainties of human decisions. But that's not the right way to look at it, is it? In all the maneuverings of this very, very human plan, God is at work. See, He's not limited to the spectacular. He's not limited just to those things we can't explain any other way. They're God's activity, these are ours. No, he's not averse to using very human, very weak, very fallible people like us. He uses the schemes of Naomi, the loyalty of Ruth, the integrity of Boaz. To further his purposes in the dark days of the judges, he doesn't need to get involved in some spectacular way because he's involved already, right up to his elbows. And just how far he's involved, we sang in our opening hymn How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You see, right at the heart of the gospel stands someone who's better than Boaz. Someone who put himself at total risk for us. Well might it be said of him, I will not let this matter, I will not rest until this matter is settled. And on the cross, it was. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in the words of the hymn, I know that it is finished. You and I are on the other side of the cross of Jesus. We're in the New Testament. We're under a new covenant. But some things don't change. God still uses very human, very ordinary, very fallible people to fulfill his purpose. 2,000 years ago, he used a man who considered himself utterly unworthy to be called an apostle. He described himself as the world's greatest sinner. That's the man God used to take the most precious message in the world to the heart of the Roman Empire. Today, he uses people just like us, to do the same. He uses the details of my life, my contacts, my opportunities, my feeble words to take the same message to the ends of the earth. That's what my life is about. That's what yours is about. God doesn't use programs. He uses people. So, don't fall into the trap of the insurance company and just confine God to the extraordinary and the spectacular. He's in total control of the usual and the unusual. He was in the story of Ruth. He's in your story too, and mine. Recognize your life for what it is full of opportunity to live for the glory of God, full of opportunity to live by faith, full of opportunity to take risks for him. Doesn't that make this week exciting? Doesn't it fill this week with possibilities and potential? So let's renew our trust in the God who is leading all of history through the dark days of the judges, through the uncertain days of the 21st century, to the day when the Lord Jesus appears in majesty and glory and we are home with him forever.